Okay. Get started on the way behind. Okay. Um, Julie's passing out a handout. We've got some notes on it for you to remember. Um, just a few things we want to remind everybody. I had another set of notes. And I printed off the email from Brian, but I must have left it someplace. Oh, I have it. Yeah, I wouldn't need it. Okay, so here we go. So. HBI graduation is coming up, uh, and I mentioned that because this is an important milestone in HBF. So this is uh, this is actually the third graduation ceremony that we've had. Um, we've uh, third, I think third, yeah, third, no fourth. This is the fourth one, uh, and so we've got a, a lot of graduate students. We have five students that are graduating from HBI, and the point of this is this is our. Uh, this, this is the ultimate of discipleship, getting people, getting anybody welcome to be a part of HBI. It's not just for somebody who thinks that they're going to the mission field or thinks that they're going to be a pastor or something like that. Um, we've got people taking classes for, at any HBI because it benefits them in their job. Uh, they're just waiting to see what God would do for them or through them. Uh, they just want to be prepared. Actually, the, the message that we have today out of Colossians is interesting because uh, what Paul has to talk about is exactly what HBI is about, not specifically, but the the, for, the focus on it. So anyway, so that is June sixth, June twelfth. Uh, it's at six o'clock in the evening. That's a Sunday night. Um, everybody is welcome. I, I would just encourage you, please come, and and uh, just encourage the, the graduates. Like I said, there's five of them, and uh, it is a uh, it's a milestone for their for them. They worked hard uh, in. Um, and so, um, please come and just include. There'll be a reception at the end, cake and punch and all that kind of stuff. And um, and so uh, that's going on. That's on June 12th. And then um, on on the 21st of May is men's breakfast. Um, that's a Saturday. And um, I'm not sure who's speaking, but that's a, a breakfast and Bible thing for men. And um, we're also making Bibles. We're, we're continuing to make Bibles there. So I think uh, if you're involved in doing Bibles, you can get breakfast ahead of time. Um, okay, so thank you for you guys cleaning. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, we got the church cleaned up over the weekend. And uh, so our next cleaning time is June 25th. And uh, so please note that. And, I, and I'd like to encourage uh, everybody uh, to, I mean, we do, basically we're responsible six times a year clean the church and uh, it would really help everybody if uh, even if you just did part of it I'm not asking for people to do all of it as Julie made this a nice little spreadsheet list that helps identify what needs to be done and we can you know sign up on who got it done just to kind of help make sure everything gets done and um, so please try to be a part of it I mean it's vacuuming it's cleaning windows it's taking out the trash you know sweeping the floor mopping you know that kind of stuff if you're in the Navy, it's, it's that old hat stuff. So anyway, that's what we did. Uh, okay, so that's the 25th of June. Uh, Church in the Park is on um, for June 5th, uh, Sunday Sunday morning. They're, they're promising us the park will be open about a week ahead of time. So we should have access to parking like in the past. We should have access to the amphitheater like in the past. Um, so... Please come to that. Be planning for that. Uh, and then probably uh, the weekend before that, we'll be doing uh, taking it to the streets to go and invite people to come to church in the park. And um, so that's on as, as we've done in the past. Uh, Sharon Bolkin, who played for her and for Bob. Uh, Judy Steele is still struggling. What did she get diagnosed with? Um, pulmonary obstruction. Pulmonary obstruction. So she's, she's still hurting, so we praying for her, uh, and uh, just keep her lifted up. And also, Bob Klein, how are you doing this morning? Doing okay. I finally got an appointment made to see the audiologist at VA, explained uh, what had happened when I visited with my primary care physician. He had this little headphone deal where he could you know, turn it up until you could hear and understand. Let's take the one off your left ear, crank that thing all the way up and down on the right side. So wow. He agreed that, yeah, you probably need to 
Did I hear good hearing aids? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. I'll be following you behind. Paul in behind you here shortly. Yeah. In the meantime, I'm sick and tired of having to carry spare bridges around with me. Yeah. I understand that. That's tough. Mine works 24/7. It does. At least it works. At least I was about to say the same thing. Well, at least it's working. Um, and then, uh, so pray, we'll pray for Bob continually. Uh, vacation Bible School, uh, VBS signups are open right now. It starts on June 20th. There's a lot going on in June. June is a busy month. And then uh, the end of May, which is the last weekend of May, is the fifth Sunday. It's also Memorial Day weekend. Uh, <clears throat> I think it is, anyway. Um, that's a fifth Sunday, so it's fabulous fifth Sunday, so... We will not have class. We will not have anything at 9 o'clock. There will be no Bible fellowship at 9 o'clock, no combined service at 9 o'clock. The only thing we're having is at 10.30. I think it's at 10.30, isn't it? Until yes. 10.30. Uh, we'll have the Lord's Supper uh, at, at 10.30, so please come to that. Um, and um, just know that uh, for the rest of this year, anyway, whenever we have a fifth Sunday in the month, we will not have any class, any combined services or anything for a while. Um, <clears throat> so, I, I don't know, was there anything else on there? Just two other things. So, the resource center is open again with lots of resources. And then he mentioned the apologetics on Wednesday night. Okay. So, the, the resource center, I think most everybody knows this, the wooden box in the lobby. It's always sitting there. Heather Borntrigger has... has uh, volunteered to oversee that and she's got a team of people and she could use, I think she said a couple more couples to kind of run it during certain times of the of the, the week. Um, and uh, so the resource center is like a bookstore. You know, you can buy pens, notepads, books, study guides, Bibles, different things like that. Um, and so that's always there. And then uh, um this Wednesday night, I'm starting a, a series on Wednesday night Bible study at 6.30 on what is called, well, it, generically it's called apologetics, which means uh, a reasonable defense of the, of the truth of the, of the Bible. And, um, and so I'm going to be teaching that at probably, I don't know how long it'll take. It could take eight or nine months. It could take <laughs> eight or nine weeks. I don't know. <clears throat> There's a lot of material. I'm not going to try to cover it all. But uh, if you want to come to that, that's there Wednesday nights, and um, there'll be no standout. So I think that's everything. Yeah, and that'll be online too. So people I believe it'll be on. I'm not 100 percent positive, but I think it is going to be online. Okay, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Before we do that, let's turn over to the Book of Ecclesiastes, chapter seven. We'll read verses one to ten. We'll pray through these passages here, and then we'll get started. And um, I'm glad everybody made it, and I know everybody would probably like us. It's like, uh, I don't know if I want to get out in that ring. And, uh, but I'm glad that you did, and uh, everybody made it here. As far as I know, that were coming here made it. Um, the wind was blowing pretty hard in our house before we left. Or, anyway, okay, so Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. <clears throat> A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for it is the sadness of countenance. The heart is made better. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning of thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Say not thou, what is the cause that the, that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, everybody who would be able to make it here, Lord. I know some 
uh, just didn't want to get out, uh, but we're thankful for we have technology like we do, and people can still join in on online, and we praise you for that. We do pray, Father, that, uh, Lord, that you help us always to maintain a good name uh, of Christ in our lives, and that, and that uh, Lord, uh, that name is important, not just for you, but for us. It should be for us as well. We ask for your help in that, Lord, that we can always be obedient to the word of God, and that we could... Uh, uh, do according to your will as we've read through these passages here, Lord. We thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Lord, we read here that the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit, and it's hard to be patient and to uh, wait on what you might have for us. Father, we, we thank you for your, your wisdom books that teach us what is wise and true and also what is foolish and false. And as we <clears throat> approach to a study with apologetics, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us um, wisdom and truth um, in our hearts as we study your word to declare uh, your gospel, to declare you and to be your witness on this earth. Father, we just want to conclude in prayer. We do want to lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, have have needs, Lord. Uh, pray for uh, Sharon Bulk and, and pray for Judy <coughs> Steele. Lord, just lift him up. Pray for Bob Klein, too. Uh, pray for his uh, hearing test that he's going to be getting, Lord, and it would uh, uh, give the, direct, the doctor's guidance and direction on which way to go. We do pray for, for Judy Steele's breathing. Uh, Lord, just heal, heal her as, as quickly as possible so that she might be able to be uh, engaged again as she desires. And, uh, and Lord, Lord, we, uh, we want to pray, Father, for all of the events that are going on in the church. Thank you for our missionaries that we have opportunity to support. Praise you for them and all of the work they do. And we just thank you and praise you for all. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> so we're not too far behind now. Um, okay, so... Ecclesiastes, I'm talking, uh, where am I at? Colossians, there we go. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, is where we're going to be this morning. We're just going to get a few verses down, probably to verse 8. Um, and so, just as a reminder, I will read the passage here in a minute, but just as a reminder, Paul is writing to a young church. <clears throat> and I would consider it a young church because, um, well, at this point in time in, in, in history, all the churches are actually young churches. You know, we don't have any 25-year-old churches in the Bible right now at this point in time in history. Now, so this is a young church, and Paul is writing them uh, to encourage them uh, and encourage them in the Lord and the Savior, and uh, talking about the, the truth, uh, and um, he's teaching them truth regarding the Bible, regarding Christ and, and their Lord. We talked about that last week. We wrapped up chapter uh, chapter one, verses fifteen to nineteen. We talked about the deity of Christ and so on. But Paul actually has another purpose that I haven't really brought forward. You probably picked it up in some of the verses that are mentioned. But he has a secondary purpose in writing this letter, and it's very similar. Remember why he wrote the letter to the Second Corinthians? He wrote to the Corinthian church because there was a lot of false teaching going on. There was a lot of uh, people coming in uh, trying to persuade the people, the members of the church at Corinth, that the things that Paul had taught them was false. Okay, well this church is a little bit the same, but it's different. So, this church, it's not that this church was taught by Paul. This is the first time Paul has taught this church is in this letter. But what he's saying is, they taught you wrong. Now pay attention to what I'm saying. So it's kind of a way Paul is talking, but not exactly. He's not being rude or crude or rough about it or anything. But he does want the church to know that they're under the influence of false teachers who desire to destroy the heart of the believer and to destroy the church. And they're teaching nonsensical and false doctrine, which Paul begins to address in the second half of chapter 1. So that's where he went. We're not going to go back all the way to verse 10 of chapter 1 and work our way back through it again. We've already dealt with that those first couple of weeks. Um, But... Paul wrote there, he talked about the deity of Christ in chapters 1, verses 15 and 19. He talked about, remember that word, Christ, uh, preeminence, pre-first, before, uh, eminent, royalty, r- ruling. 
And uh, and so and and uh, and now starting in chapter two. <coughs> Now in chapter 2, Paul speaking of his great concern for the church. So he's kind of like, okay, I'm going to make it a little bit personal here, but I'm still still going to stay on doctrine. Uh, This is the issue of purpose, uh, why he's writing this letter. So so in verses 1 and 2, we'll read that. Paul has a great conflict that he's addressing, he's trying to address. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all the riches of the fullest of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. That's verses one and two. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> well, thank you. Appreciate that. I don't know what I was starting to choke on. Okay. <clears throat> so Paul has a conflict he's talking about. Right out of verse 1 of chapter 2. He's, he's mentioning the common uh, a, a conflict. And you know, it's, it's common for us when we think somebody has a conflict with somebody else. We usually think uh, that that's a negative thing, right? It's a, I, have, I have a conflict with you. I'm going to address you because I'm, I'm conflicted about your, you and your behavior or whatever. It's not quite like that. <clears throat> Paul's conflict is, and he expressed it as, his conflict is a motivation uh, for the benefit of the church. Basically, we all should be conflicted that everybody does the right thing and everybody knows the right truth and everybody believes the right truth. And that's what Paul was kind of getting to. So go back and look at verse verse 29 of chapter 1 for just a minute. Because it actually is connected together. In the last verse of chapter 1, Paul strives. He says in verse 21, 29, Wherefore, or whereunto, I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. For I would that ye knew what con- great conflict I have for you, and for them in Laodicea, and for as many as not seen my faith. You see, there's a connection there between... The end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2. And Paul is striving, uh, which means, and we talked about this a little bit last week as we ended up the chapter, end of chapter 1. Paul is striving by, to, to preach the truth and to present the reality of Jesus Christ. He wants to make sure the church is introduced to the person they say they believe. The person that they say they're following. And he wants to make sure that the church knows who Christ is. And so he is, he has, he, he is conflicted. He says in verse 29, he, he is striving because he's convicted, he's conflicted in verse 1. And they all go together. So to strive, there's a little bit of a definition for you. To strive means to contend, to fight, or to press towards victory. That's what, so that's what he's talking about here. He's, he's, he's contending for the truth. He's fighting for the truth and he's pressing towards victory. And what would that victory be in the church at Colossia? That they all knew what they believed. In fact, he said in verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. And we'll talk more about that knitting together here in just a minute. In other, in other passages, the same word for strive that he used in verse 29 is, is translated as um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we don't need to turn there, uh, translated as master, uh, labor fervently in, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. We'll get to that chapter here in a few, uh, well, I'm down the road, I'm not sure when. Uh, and so fight a good fight in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He's using the different, con- the different ways of saying he strives in different passages. But here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul describes a great conflict while keeping the same emphasis on warring and good warfare. Remember what he told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. He said, This charge I committed to thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went on before thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. Now, Paul is, Paul is trying to get the church to understand that there's a battle going on in this church. There's a war happening in this church. There's actually a war happening at HBF right now. And I don't know everybody's looking at me like, what's going on? Who's fighting? No, it's not that kind of war. It's a spiritual war. It's always happening. It is always contention for what is the truth. Now, 
I don't know of anybody in the no human being right now that is teaching false doctrine at HBF because we won't let them. We they get started and we'll shut them down pretty quick. But we need to be able to identify when something is happening or something is being something is threatening what the truth is and what truth we believe and what our doctrines are here. We we want to make and one of the reasons we don't let just anybody teach until they've been through discipleship is because we want to make sure that we're on the same page, that knit together doctrinally <coughs> and 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 uh, ministerially effort and what we're trying to get. And so anyway, Paul describes a great conflict in chapter one, 2, verse 1, but he keeps the emphasis on war and a good warfare. And so we speak often of being in a war. We talk about the war for the souls of men and women. Uh, and this is a point that Paul is making, that there is a war, and we must be the very best in that war. How is a war going to... Okay, I was reading this morning the news because you know I read my Bible and I wanted to read, keep up with what's going on in the news. And I'd read an article about Ukraine that uh, it's an amazing thing. The Ukrainian soldiers are keeping the Russian soldiers at bay. They can't do what they want to do. They thought they'd be you know through Ukraine, wipe it all out, destroy, it, take it over in a couple of weeks. It's been several months, and now they're talking about they're not going to get in the first. So how did those soldiers do that? This is one thing you don't get in the news. How did those Ukrainian soldiers accomplish what they accomplished? Steadfast. What's that? Steadfast. Stead, they were steadfast. That's very true. And why were they steadfast? Because they trained. They trained very hard. Our military trains hard to be the best military that they can be. If we don't train as Christians, we will not be a good Christian. And that's the point that Paul is trying to get to. And so... Um, uh, there is a war, Paul is trying to get to the point of making, and we must be the very best in that war because there are souls at stake. If we don't fight right, if we don't defend truth, if we don't uh, rally around correct doctrine, um, then we're letting falseness in, and they're going to come in and they will steal. In fact, Paul later on uses the word spoil, and we'll talk about that word in here just a minute. So anyway, in verse 2, uh, there's a common bond between us that I just mentioned. It says, their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of the understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the Father and of Christ. And so Paul clearly wanted the church to know how much he cared for them. Because he doesn't just have this concern simply because your soldiers do something. He actually cares for them. He cares enough that he wanted to write this letter. The phrase great conflict is really an expression of how deep his love went for the church. How deep his love went. He, he didn't even know these people. But he loved them that deeply that he would stick his neck out, write a letter and send it from prison, no less. Which is really kind of a neat thing to think about. It's also an expression, the, the expression uh, great conflict. It's also an expression of how we must feel about each other and all the body of Christ. We need to have a great conflict in us because we know somebody is hurting. And we ought to address that. We ought to, we ought to help that and support that and, and try to be an encouragement to people who are hurting. Paul didn't just see this battle at Colossians. He didn't, see, he didn't even just see it at, 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 at Corinth. He also saw it down the road in Laodicea. And I think this is kind of interesting. I never really thought too much about this until I was getting ready for this serve, this lesson today. But notice in chapter two, verse one, it says that I would have you, I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. So he's conflicted with them as he's he's had a great conflict for them as well. And so <clears throat> I believe the reason that Paul even mentioned the church at, at Laodicea was that they had already fallen to the same threat that's happening to Colossia and, Col and Corinth and HBF right now. They, they fell. Laodicea fell. You know how I know? Turn to Re Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> we just look at a few verses. We're not going to read the whole passage. It's a little long. We don't want to take the time to read it. But Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse, I believe, verse 14 down to the verse 22. Jesus Christ has sent a letter to, to seven churches. This is the seventh of the seven churches. 
And he writes this letter, and he starts in verse 14. I just, he says, Unto the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Jesus is not happy with the church of Laodicea. He's probably not going to be happy with the church of Corinth or Colossia if they fall to this battle. And so, because, you know what? The point is that we should never fall to that battle. We should always be victorious. victorious. We should always win this war. So, uh, that's guy said, I believe that Paul wrote because the church of Laodicea has already fallen. So, in verses 15 to 16, Christ calls them lukewarm. In verse 17, which I think, don't think we read down through 17, uh, Christ describes them as thinking that they have no need, but needed what Paul was, what they actually needed, what the church at Laodicea needed, was what Paul was giving them, giving Colossians. And this is really interesting. Look, I'll read verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knoweth not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So Paul, so Jesus is saying, hey, you, you're, you're, you're missing the boat. And in verse 19, Christ tells them to recover their zealousness and repent of their lack of recognizing that the war is all around them. So this is why I think Paul told, told it. If you look at, we don't take the time. Go back to Colossians anyway. In chapter 4 of Colossians, verse 16, Paul writes, And he says, here, I'm, I'm writing you a letter. I want you to let the church of Laodicea read it as well. I think when this epistle is read among you, cause it to be read also in the church of Laodicea. Now, why did he want to do that? He, Paul, Paul told Colossia to, to share their letter that they may learn and see the need also to engage. I do think Laodicea could have recovered itself if they had tried. The church at Laodicea could have recovered themselves and been a very strong church. The last church that was strong, Jesus Christ wrote, was the church of Philadelphia. Now he's writing to the church at Laodicea and says, Well, you guys, I just spew you out. You're just useless to me now. But they could recover. You can recover yourself. Every one of us could recover ourselves back to being a valuable asset to the war for the soul of men and women if we would just do what Paul is saying to the church of Colossia. So, here, here's, here's what's really neat. He, he said, I don't think that he, I mean, I know he said, share the letter, let them read it, but I don't think he said just, I don't think he was implying, just send a copy of the letter and hope it's read. Make a copy of the church that I, the letter that I wrote you, and make a copy of it and send it on down through the post office and have it go to Laodicea. I don't think that's what he wants. What I think he wants, don't just send a copy and hope it's read, Go, he says, to cause them to be cause them. Look at well, now. Turn to fourteen, verse chapter four, verse sixteen. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of Laodicea. Cause it to be read. How do you do that? You go stand in the middle of that church and read the letter. You preach the truth. You preach that letter. Paul is telling Corinth, take this letter, go to Laodicea, go to Laodicea, and preach what I'm preaching. Preach what I'm preaching. And so, don't just send a letter. Go there and encourage them by preaching. It's evident that the letter either was not read, if they even sent it, and it would, or it was not heeded. Because, you know why? Because we're still in the Laodicean church age. We're still in the Laodicean church age. For hundreds of years, we've been in the Laodicean church age. If the Laodiceans had gotten the letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, we wouldn't be in the Laodicean church age today. We would be maybe, well, I don't know what we would be in, but maybe back in the Philadelphia church age again, which is, I think, where God wants us to be. He wants us to be Philadelphian churches. Well, what does that mean? Loving people, caring about people, teaching the truth, going on mission trips, serving the Lord to the best and the fullest of our ability. So I think it's evident that that's what's happening with why he wanted to write. It's the only letter that references Laodicea outside of the book of Revelation is right here. It's mentioned four times in Colossians and only twice in Revelation. That's right. Yeah. yeah. This this chapter chapter two verse one is the first time that he mentions it, and then it's a couple other times. You're right. Okay. So let's keep going. Paul's first encouragement. He's encouraging the church, and his first encouragement is to experience truth. 
experience truth. Too many times the concept of truth is perverted in the world that we live today. Would you agree? Yes. Nobody seems to know what truth is. Well, truth is whatever I make it. That's the attitude today, it's whatever I make it. Often it's our fault, though, because we fail to align ourselves to truth. And we often fail to defend what is truth. We're all familiar with what Pilate said to, to Jesus Christ when, when they, he was being ready to get crucified in John chapter 18, verse 38. Pilate asked that question, a famous question. What is truth? And he didn't even wait for an answer. He turned and walked out of the room. Jesus answered it, though. Actually, Jesus answered it earlier in chapter 17, before he ever met with Pilate. He said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. What's the rest of that? Thy word is truth. So you already know that. So we have need to align ourselves to truth, which is align ourselves to the word of God. What Paul wants you to do is what Jesus did, did say to Pilate that prompted this sarcastic question. If you backed up to John chapter 18, verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Art thou a king? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I'm a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. That's why Christ came, to bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And that's when he's, Pilate turned, looked at him and said, Well, truth, what is truth? And walked out of the room. So the point is this. There's two principles that Christ mentioned in verse 37 that is important for you and me for right now. First, this first principle is that we are to bear witness unto the truth. We have a responsibility to bear witness of the truth. The second thing Jesus said at the verse 37 is that we, we, if we are of the truth, we must hear the voice of God. We must be listening to God speak through his word. Okay, so let me give you a definition. I think it's in your notes. This is a definition of what I would... This is my definition of truth. After looking at the scripture, I kind of... Um, coalesce it all down to this. Truth corresponds, that's what your first blank is, corresponds to reality as perceived as your second blank. Truth corresponds to reality as perceived by God because God's perception of reality is never distorted. It is a perfect perception of what is real. You want to know what truth is? Find out what God thinks about it. That's how you find out what truth is. Because God defines truth. His word is truth. His son is truth. We have to align ourselves to that. I think we're quite familiar. Let me go down to the next one. The next encouragement before I jump over that. So first encouragement is experience truth. Second encouragement is to expose lies. Expose lies. So I think we're all familiar with what a lie actually is, right? I, I mean, I, I would be probably not wrong to say that probably every one of us has said at least one lie. You know, like, no, mommy, I didn't do that. Okay, so anyway, we all know what it is. But let me give you a real quick statement about lies. Lies are basically are anything that's void of the truth. Lies are void of the truth. It's the antithesis of truth. It's the opposite of truth. The Bible gives us clarity on the sin of lying as well. Remember what Jesus Christ said to the Pharisees in John chapter seven, uh, 8, verse 44? He said... He called them, their father, the devil, who, uh, a liar who does not abide in truth. They don't, they don't align themselves with truth. They align themselves to their traditions instead of the truth. So there's only one way to expose lies. And that is, you probably have heard to say, if you want to know what a counterfeit dollar looks like, know what a real one looks like, then you can identify the counterfeit. Well, know the truth, and you can identify the lie. And that's the same thing with the Word of God. For a, for a believer, identifying truth means three things. Knowing Scripture. So you, you, if you don't know Scripture, you will not know truth. You won't be able to identify when somebody's falsely teaching something. You walk into a Bible study someplace, and they're teaching on, on Christ uh, and how, much, how him and his brother used to fight all the time in heaven. And if you don't know that that's a false thing in the Bible, then you won't then you'll just accept it. That's what happens with a lot of people. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that. And so we've got to be careful. So know, know the scripture, know doctrine, know, know the doctrine, not just knowing the scripture, but know the doctrine as well. And third thing is for a believer to know how to speak truth. Every one of us need to be able to verbalize what the truth is. 
How many of you, probably none of us, I don't because I don't, I, it's been a long time since I've done it, so I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, how many of you have read uh, HBS Statement of Faith? Okay, good. More than I, more than I really thought. Praise the Lord. I mean, just tell you, that statement of faith is what this church believes, and what we want every member to believe is that statement of faith. We want them to align with that because that is our marching order. That is our position on on truth of the Word of God and doctrine and so on. So it's imperative not to fall for the lying, deceptive practices of the devil, who wants to steal your walk, to steal your relationship with God and to steal your heart for God and for his word. Satan wants to steal your um, and uh, let me back up for a second make sure I didn't miss anything. No, I don't think so. Okay, verses 2, the first, the second part of verse 2 through down verse 4. Paul has a great precaution. He's warning us. He's, he's, he wants us to take be careful with things. So um, let me check this do again. <coughs> Being knit together in love and unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Okay, so Paul's warning to the church is that we must all take steps to not be beguiled. Paul's warning us not to be beguiled. The key step of the church to defend against lies is to ensure all the hearts of the of the body are knit together. Because if you're not knit together, you're more easily beguiled. Now, to be knit together, he's not just talking about loving each other and having a, having a love for each other. That is important. But to be knit together is also a full assurance of understanding. We are knit together in what we think, what we believe, what we teach about the Bible. We all, I mean, every one of us should be able to preach Brian's message. If you've been through discipleship, discipleship too, why not? Why, I mean, I think we should all be able to do that. Maybe not in his method and using his words and stuff, but the doctrine that he teaches, the truth that he teaches, why can't we do that? We should all be able to do that. It's not. It's, there's no reason for us not to be able to do that. To be knit together, um, the word, the phrase, being knit together is one Greek word, and it means to come together in a firm union, which are, where our hearts are one as in a solid Christian friendship, cemented by the love of the brethren. And so Paul expresses the same concept to the Ephesians. He mentioned in Ephesians 4.16 the same thing, but he uses a different word. He doesn't use being knit together there. He uses the word compacted. For whom the whole body fitly joined together, so the joining together is knit together, joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, make it increase for the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Paul's telling that church right there basically the same thing he's talking about in us Colossians about being knit together. So fundamentally, the body of Christ, and I don't have this in your notes because I'd run out of space, but fundamentally the the body of Christ in the local church should be knit together or compacted together four ways. And I'll, I'll read them off to you. Uh, I'm going to go through kind of quick. Sorry. All right. A full love for other believers, regardless of who they are. A full everything is full understanding. The next year, full understanding, full understanding of the mystery of God. A full understanding of our relationship to God, and a full understanding of the truth of God. And you get all of that out of verses two, three, and four. Verse 2 especially. Uh, being, being knit together in love and with all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God the Father and of Christ in whom are all are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Okay, so what does it mean to be beguiled? That's, we, we're, we need to avoid that, but what does it mean? You know the first time you see the word beguile, anybody know? Genesis chapter 3 verse 13 when Eve said, he beguiled me. Talking about the devil, um, and so to beguile is to reason with somebody falsely. To beguile reason is reason with somebody falsely or deceptively to mislead. And so Paul gives us a defense against deception and trickery of the enemy. He tells us, "Be knit together, 
in verse 2. He tells us to seek to discover all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in verse 3. He also tells us uh, in verse, I think it's 4 and 5, to, to avoid man's enticing words, because enticing and beguiling are very similar. He told, us, he told the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words. So Paul is saying, my, my, I don't give enticing words, I just give the truth. And the man's a little bit arrogant, but at the same time, it's true. That's what he did. He goes on, he said, but in demonstration of the spirit and the power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So what Paul means here, to avoid persuasive discourse, to, to, to not, not get involved in men's enticing words, to avoid persuasive discourse or words that are meant to change your thinking. So think about this. So you've got, you got a group of people that have come in, or I don't know how many people that have come into this church, come into, into Corinth, and, and they come in and they start saying, well, that's not right, this isn't right, that's not right, that's not... Let me tell you how it really is. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to persuade you to stop believing what you believe and not believe this. Those are, those are men with enticing words. How do you how do you protect that? How do you how do you know if the words spoken are true? So here's how you test. Remember, there was a test for a for a prophet, right? Back in the, I think Deuteronomy, I don't remember where exactly right now. But you you test a prophet by knowing if his, does his prophecy come true. Okay, well here's how you test. Here's how you test if somebody's teaching the truth. Paul told Timothy in Second Timothy chapter two verse fifteen, study to show thyself approved unto God. So you want to know how you know, how, the best way for you to know that you can stand against somebody who's enticing you with words that, that are false, study the Bible. Study the Bible. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that rightly dividing is critical because if you don't divide up the doctrine properly, you'll misapply doctrine, which is... So some churches teach, you know, that, we, that Israel's God's done with Israel. The church replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. That is a false teaching. How do you know? Well, because I studied the Bible. And I see God's promises. And I see that God's promises, well, he, he makes a promise. He doesn't break his promise. Now, you and I know we all break promises. We've all broken promises a time or two, maybe once at least, you know, but we've all done that. God doesn't break his promises. God keeps his promises. So, so you automatically know that replacement theology is a false teaching. So that's just an example. But this is why we do so much Bible teaching in this church and why we want so many people to study the Bible. There are too many churches running around out there today. There are too many churches that don't teach or they don't teach properly. They either don't teach. You know, you, tell, you, you may talk to somebody, yeah, we disciple our church. Disciple, what is that? You know, they, they don't know. Yet, you would not know it without being first filter. Now, this is my expression for the thing. So, first filter. You need to be first filter for making sure that what's coming into you is true. You need to filter it out. You need to run it through the filter. What is the filter? The filter is the Bible. You need to make sure. You need to be the first filter that what, 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 is, what is being taught to you, what, what some man with enticing words is saying to you, you need to run it through the Bible, be a filter. Is it true? Whether it, uh, you need to filter things, whether it's bad teaching or bad food, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. Or bad entertainment. You need to filter that. You are your you are your own first filter, unless you're five. If you're five, your parents are your filter. Anybody five? I don't think so. All right, let's finish up. We're almost out of time. Verses 6 to 8, Paul's great warning. So Paul says in verse 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. I mean, you think about all of these encouraging words that Paul is laying out here in these, just in these first eight, eight verses. And you think, how could, it, how could we not want to do what he's saying? I don't want to study the Bible. I don't want to learn the Bible. I don't want to do that. I don't want to know that stuff. Why not? Why wouldn't you not know to? That's what we come in. To, we encourage people to do this. Anyway, go on. Verse 8. 
Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy of vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Okay, so Paul has a great warning. Verse 6, do not forget how you receive the, the gift of salvation. Notice in verse 6 it says, as you therefore have received, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus, so walk you in Him. What does he mean by that? Well, I think what he means is Paul is warning us. He's, he begins as a reminder to the church to never forget what you had received when you bowed the knee to Christ and what you accepted as truth. I mean, when you bowed the knee to Christ and you asked Christ to come into your heart and save you. Don't you think you believed all the doctrine about Christ, about what, what was being taught to you at the time? Or do you think, well, this is a bunch of lies, I'm going to get saved? <laughs> no. Like, this is, th- I've never heard this truth before. This is awesome, I'm getting saved. Keep that, keep that emotion in you, Paul is saying. Stay where you're at. Uh, as you therefore have received, walk. Walk like you receive. No, in other words, never lose how you felt the day you got saved. Never lose that. So, okay, so anyway, then we try to lost. Okay, so he wants us to think about our salvation and what we accepted. What was, your, what was on your mind regarding truth at the moment of salvation? Did you receive Christ because of greed for what others had or because truth compelled you to take it? Was truth what, did you get saved because you, you recognized this is truth? Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, this is what he told the church there. For this cause also, do I think, do for this cause also, thank we God without without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively worketh also in you that believe. See what he's telling the church at Thessalonica: you got saved because you believed what we were teaching you, because it's truth, and you accepted as truth. Now Paul's telling the church at Corinth or Colossia. Do the same thing. As you received him, so walk ye in him. And so too often Christians forget how they approach the truth when they got saved. And I've I've count I've I've suggested this multiple times. Never forget what it was like the day you got saved. And so too often Christians forget how they approach the truth concerning their coming to Christ, and soon they forget even what they believe about Christ. But worse yet, many are not even taught what it means to receive Christ as Savior. You know what? They're convinced that through deceit and lies that they are saved through actions like baptism, tithing, attending. It's a long list of lies. I just gave you the top three. I mean, anything, you know, you can get saved 15 different ways according to the liars. But then he says to walk in them. Walk in, in, in um, walk ye in him, in Christ. So walk with confidence, knowing that your salvation is set in stone and is sealed inside you. Allow your actions, your walk, to show the world what is truth. Basically, how you live is what people see, and they'll see you live, you believe the truth. Ephesians 1.13, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of our spirit. And then Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 2, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself. Okay, and then I'm going to finish up with this. Um, establishing your faith, in verse 7. So he goes on and he says in verse 7, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So Paul was concerned that this young church, yet well established in the faith, was, was, was concerned... Paul was concerned... I don't know what I've said here. You know what? Sometimes I might get my typing going crazy. But anyway, Paul's concerned here that this young church, even though it's established right now, may not, may not have can completely be established in what they believe. And by extension, it's critical that every believer is established in the faith. But Paul said in um, Acts chapter 16, verse 5, when he's talking about his own ministry, talking about the churches that are growing, this is really kind of cool. In Acts 16.5 And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in the number daily. That's what Paul wants every church, even our church, to be established in the faith and increased in number daily. To be established is to be stable, to be strong. To be established means to be have a firm footing on the point on a to the point of being deeply rooted. So I had heard this the other day and I couldn't remember what tree it was, 
So I looked it up real quick. Um, there are many trees with trees with roots that go down more than 25 feet. The deepest tree ever is a wild fig with a root going down 400 feet. It's in the Kalahari Desert, 400 feet. A lot of a lot of trees have a root system that goes as deep as 230 feet down. How deep is your root in the faith? How deep is your root in what you believe? Can you easily be uprooted? That's an, an interesting thing to think about. Not being deeply rooted made the church an easy target for deception and false teaching. And then Paul concludes in chapter 8, verse 8, and I'm just going to pause right here because, well, I plan to, but Paul talks about four things. He identified four mechanisms that spoil the church. And the word spoil is interesting, and we'll cover this again at the beginning of next week. Uh, it's more than just decay, you know, like uh, you have a spoiled rotten apple or something like that. He's not talking about that. He's talking about you being the spoils of war. Because there's a battle right now. right? And in every battle in the Old Testament, the victor took the spoils. They went in and they took everything that was there and they, they spoiled the, the losers. They took their stuff. Remember when, uh, who was it? Was it Abraham that went after, um, I think it was Abraham. He rescued his own people. He rescued his people and he gave the spoils of that victory as a, as a, as a tithe. He, spo- he tithed on the spoils. So the spoils is what you get. And what Paul is saying, don't get spoiled. Don't let, this, don't let the devil spoil you. Don't let him take away your, your, your root. Be rerooted. So there's mechanisms of spoiling. There's philosophy he talks about. There's vain deceit. There's traditions of men. There's rudiments of the world. And we'll pick all of that up next week. We'll break those down a little bit in more detail what that means. Because, you know, philosophy is both good and bad. Vain deceit uh, is an interesting thing. Traditions of men, well, you know, I mean, we have traditions here at HBF. Are they bad? Are, there, are we incentive to traditions? So we'll talk about those kind of things. And the rudiments of the world, we'll break down all of it. Not, it's not rutabagas, I don't think. But anyway, all right, let's pray and we'll be out of here. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for tonight or for, for this morning. Thank you for uh, the word of God. Thank you for allowing us, Father, to, to spend time together in it. Help us always to be knit together, Lord. Help us always to be focus on the right things and always defending the truth and standing standing firm on doctrine and teach us how to do that uh, through this study. We just thank you and praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hi Judy. Glad you were able to make it. See you later.